It does seem a little weird to end singing with dismissing kids, but that is part of worship, right? I mean, we've got, we've got kids here with us. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that amazing? I love, I love family camp. It's not just youth camp. It's not just adult camp. not just grandparent camp. That'd be kind of fun, actually. This is family camp, and whether you are here with a biological family or not, you are part of the family, and I love seeing kids here. I love that our, our kid, Judah, gets to be here with you, and uh, you've treated him and us so very kindly and gently, and uh, this evening, I, w- I want to encourage you, it, it's going to be maybe a little bit of a harder message for some of you, um, because it deals with a little bit of uh, a harder topic. But there's great hope and great encouragement and great victory in this. And we're at that time of the week where, where we need that already, don't we? Some of you are a little pink today, like me. You forgot the sunscreen. Some of you smell a little worse than you did yesterday. Uh, we're a little sweaty, okay? Maybe you've already run out of deodorant. Maybe if you're a newbie like me, you didn't pack enough, okay? So there is a Walmart somewhere in this county, I think, at least. So, hey... We're, we're at Monday evening, and uh, maybe we're a little bit tired, but so, so, so very glad that you are here. When my wife Meredith and Judah and I moved to Iowa about five years ago, uh, we were given a list of things that you have to do now that you're an Iowan, right? And we do finally consider ourselves Iowans. The first thing that we had to do was go to the state fair, right? Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's like on, every, on, on every Iowan's bingo card. <laughs> Sorry, can we say? Probably don't say bingo card here. Um, uh, tic-tac-toe card, okay? You, you know, you, you cross the Iowa State Fair. We did it, right? We went to the State Fair. We love it. We saw the butter cow. We saw the Star Trek carvings out of butter. We saw all those things. Just so amazing, right? The things that we put on a stick and put into our mouth are just fantastic. I love the pork chop on a stick, the corn on a stick, everything on a stick. It's just amazing. Thank you, Iowa, for bacon. I just love it. We, we, had to, we had to learn what a cornfield looked like when it was being uh, planted, right? There's a difference between soy and corn and everything else out there, and we had to be able to point out a cornfield. So this is what a cornfield looks like, right? We had to know that to be an Iowan, right? You know that, right? And then we had to go to IRBC family camp to be an Iowan, and here we are, so we can finally say that we've done all three things. We can move now. We actually, we're official. We did it. Yesterday, Meredith and Judah and I were walking around just because we haven't seen the whole campus here, 52 amazing acres, and we thought, well, we'll just walk around and kind of, um, just kind of see what's out here. So Judah wanted to do the maze. So we went over, we walked all the way over to the maze, and I thought, well, surely it'll be closed up because, like, there's no lifeguard on duty or anything over there, and, uh, you know, we're just going to get lost and, and end up having to eat each other because we <laughs> run out of food and stuff, you know. Uh, <laughs> we'd eat him first. <laughs> he's, uh, he's thin, but there's a, there's a lot there. Uh, so... <laughs> We get in and um, we find our way from, from, you know, from this side all the way through in just a couple minutes. It's, it, it was fantastic. I couldn't believe it, actually. It's so high. You can't see over. You can hardly see through. We, get, we wind all the way through and we get to the other door and it's locked. <laughs> well, of course it's locked. You're not supposed to be in there yesterday, right? There's nothing going on over there. So no big deal. We just turn around and go back the way we came. Well, we got hopelessly lost. And we had to have been in there for about 30 minutes. And at about minute 12, my wife Meredith starts to get a little like, will they ever find us if we don't show up to the next session? You know, we sort of wound our way around. And finally, Judah, you know, he's just running all over the place. And, uh, and he found our way out. And so, we, you know, we got, to, we got to be here again today. So don't go to the maze if you're not supposed to be in the maze. All right, that's another newbie, uh, you know, a rule of thumb for those of you that are like us and you've never been here before. We feel like we're Iowans. We left Pennsylvania five years ago to come on staff at Taylorville Church in uh, Des Moines, sort of the southern Ankeny, northern Des Moines area. And I'm the pastor of discipleship. My wife is on staff there as our women's counselor, and we absolutely love it here. But we left an amazing community in Pennsylvania. I was in youth ministry. We volunteered at a church during college when we met. We fell in love with each other, fell in love with youth ministry, stayed there for almost 20 years, and then finally moved here. But we really cut our teeth and built our roots in ministry in Pennsylvania. 
And so when we moved to Iowa, we really didn't know a whole lot of people, and we missed our closest friends, and especially our neighborhood in Pennsylvania. We lived at the bottom, you know, Pennsylvania, we're in the, the, the edge, the foothills of the Pocono Mountains. So we're sort of out in the middle of nowhere, but our specific street uh, was a cul-de-sac. We went down the hill, and we're at the bottom of the hill, at the bottom of the cul-de-sac. Our next door neighbor, he was sort of like the um, self-appointed mayor of the neighborhood, right? He's the guy with, like, with, that wears leather jackets with shoulder pads. He's got the old Mustang. He's always smoking a stogie and like making his own wine in his garage. It's just weird stuff, right? Everybody loved this guy, though, but he was always kind of hanging out. He was always out in his driveway. Rob, oh my goodness, he was a talker. Just, he was always down to hang out. So we were always talking with him out in our driveway. On the other side of us was, um, was a couple that were actually wardens at the state penitentiary about 30 minutes away. This dude was huge, and his wife was tiny. She was a sniper, and he was one of the guys that like, walked up and, down, um, up and down the hallways and, uh, and made sure that the guys were doing what they were supposed to do. He was massive. When he first moved in, he started cutting down a bunch of these tr uh, trees in the backyard. We sort of lived in the woods a little bit, and I saw him with an axe cut down like five huge evergreen trees, not with a chainsaw, with an axe. And then by himself, he carried them over the hill and threw them down into the ravine. I looked out one time, and it was dusk, and I'm like, honey, there's a bear in the backyard. <laughs> no, it was Jerry without a shirt on. This guy was <laughs> massive. He built a koi pond out of bricks, just, just in his backyard, just started stacking bricks and then made a massive square and then just filled it with water and put a bunch of fish in it. Why not? Why not? We just wanted a koi pond, I guess. On the other side of us lived an older couple. Nobody ever really knew their names. They, um, they stayed to themselves quite a bit. They had a teenage daughter or maybe a granddaughter that was maybe 16, so she would drive them everywhere. But she didn't get out and shovel the driveway and didn't really take the trash cans back in at the end of the, you know, the day when the trash came and stuff. And, and so when they, when they mowed the grass, they had a gravel driveway. Instead of, you know, stopping at the driveway and turning around, they just mowed straight over the gravel. And so they were shooting pebbles all over the neighborhood. You know, gravel rocks were just flinging everywhere. The kids were ducking and everything, like windows breaking. Nobody drove by when they were mowing the grass. One time it was snowing. They left the, the, the trash cans at the end of the driveway and then backed into it and couldn't get out. So the whole neighborhood's over there shoveling and helping them get out. We loved our neighborhood. But the best part of the neighborhood was Frank. Frank lived right across from us. And when we moved in, um, we, had the, uh, we had the police in our driveway the day that we bought our house. Because when we went to sign the papers to buy our house after our final walkthrough, somebody came into our home and stole all the copper piping. I don't know who it was, why they did that. They made $10 that night, but they, they, there's water going all over the place. And so when we came back to move into the house just a couple hours later, we saw the, the evidence and um, we called the police. And so the police were in our driveway. And because we were in youth ministry, we had teenagers over all the time. So a couple months into us living in that neighborhood, we found out that Frank, across the road, thought that, um, thought that I was a drug dealer because the cops were in our driveway before we even moved in and we constantly had teenagers in and out of the house. <laughs> but actually, as it turns out, Frank was a butcher. As, a, as an employment, he worked in a butcher shop, but he was also Italian and his last name was Tarantini. And so I told him constantly, Frank, you have to be in the mafia. Your name is Frank the Butcher Tarantini. He made sausage in his garage. He literally made it in his garage. He had a meat scale right there in the garage. In fact, when our son Judah was born, he goes, hey, Jay. He's always yelling my name from across the road. He hardly ever came to our house, but from across the road, he goes, Jay. Yes, Frank, yes, what is it? You know, he's got chest hair coming out, short shorts, gold chains everywhere. So I go right over there, bring, bring that kid over here. Okay, so I carry Judah over. He goes, uh, how much does he weigh? I don't know, Frank, your guess is as good as mine. He's like, put him on my meat scale. <laughs> what? So he holds Judah up in two hands, and he, he, he nails it. He's like, nine pounds, three ounces, or whatever, you know. 
He puts him on the meat scale. It's dead right. Nine pounds, three ounces. I'm like, this guy is amazing. Frank the Butcher Tarantini. <laughs> we miss our neighbors. We miss our neighbors. We love our neighbors here. But one of the things I miss most about Frank is that he had some incredible questions. In fact, one day we were coming back from a doctor's appointment just a couple years after we moved into that house. And uh, we drove into the driveway, walked into the house. We had just put our stuff down, just the two of us. And then, um, and then we heard Frank out in the driveway. Jay! Jay! Come out here! So I opened the door, and he actually had walked up to the door. It was highly unusual. So I said, Frank, what's up? And he goes, I got a question for you. You're a pastor, right? I said, I am. We had done some Bible studies and talked about Scripture, and he'd asked several questions up to that point. And he said, um, my nephew just got diagnosed with cancer. I said, oh, Frank, I'm, I'm really sorry. I said, how old is he? He said, he's eight years old. And this rough, tough, weathered, looked like a baseball mitt kind of guy, he's just, he's just crying on, on our front steps. And he says, Jay, answer me this. You're a pastor. How can a good God let bad things happen to people? Because what did my nephew do to deserve getting cancer? He said, how could he have ever done anything bad enough that a good God would think this was a good idea to give my nephew cancer? Oh, my heart just melted there for Frank and for our neighbors and for the people in our community and, and honestly, people all over the world that have had questions like that. How can a good God allow bad things to happen to people. You know, an atheist said one time, that question right there is the question that keeps him from believing in God. How can God be both good and still allow evil in the world, especially into our lives? You, you may be here this week. It's Monday night. Maybe you came to camp this week. Um... And you drove away from some hard things in your home. Or maybe in your circle of friends. Maybe in your neighborhood. Maybe in your small group or Sunday school class. Maybe in your extended family. Maybe you drove away from some really, really difficult heartaches. Some sadness. Maybe stress. And maybe you're here this week and you're saying, God, I, I mean, I know the answers. You're a good God. But why in the world would you allow this heartache, this evil, this bad in my life? Can there be any good that would ever come out of this? And, and maybe you're even asking the questions, God, are you, are you even good after all? I mean, I, I think you are, but how can you be good and let this happen in my life? And, and this is how the logic goes. If God is good and all-powerful, why doesn't he prevent evil? So, so follow this. If God is all-powerful, then he's able to prevent evil. If God is good, then he surely wants to prevent evil. But evil exists. So there aren't, life is not the way that it should be, right? When we think, our perception, when we think about how life should be, it doesn't seem to line up with the way life is when we look around the world. When we look at racial injustice and tension, when we look at COVID and all of the political response to that, and when we look at the things even that are affecting us personally, it just doesn't seem like life is the way that it should be or that we would want it to be. So, since evil exists, therefore God is either not all-powerful, in other words, he's unable to prevent evil, or he's not good, he's unwilling to prevent evil. So what is the answer? Well, we're not the first to ask these questions. In fact, men, women, teenagers have been asking questions like this all throughout history. And Jesus came up against a question just like this in John chapter 9. And so this evening, we're going to dig into John chapter 9 for just a couple minutes, and then we're going to look at some real-life application that, uh, that I, think, I think will be personal for some of you. John chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Jesus is just coming off a, a major confrontation with the religious leaders where he's saying, listen, you, you guys think you're all that because you follow Abraham. 
because you claim to follow all of the law, but you don't do that. And by the way, before Abraham, your father, your patriarch, your hero, before Abraham was, I am. Oh my goodness, that flipped them out. They went nuts on him. In fact, they tried to stone him, and at the end of verse, uh, at the end of chapter 8, uh, my version says that Jesus hid himself and he walked away. That, boy, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Like, this is Jesus, the Son of God, but how, was that like an invisibility cloak? I mean, how did he do this? Did he just like hide between Matthew and, and Peter or something? Like, hey, guys, cover me. <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but he's got a, 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 an angry mob, and he hides himself and escapes, walks away. And we get to chapter 9, verse 1, and here's the narrative. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, who were always with him, said, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Let's stop there. So the disciples, these are the ones following Jesus. They call him rabbi, teacher. Literally, they were, they were breathing his dust. That's what it meant to be a follower, a disciple of a rabbi, one that breathed the rabbi's dust. That's how close they were to him. And so they ask him, teacher, do some explaining on this one. Who sinned? This guy who's sitting begging, who's blind, did he sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? Now, we wouldn't necessarily think that today, but back then it was very, very, very common to assume that if someone had some kind of physical um, malady, that that was a result of sin. That bad thing in their life was a punishment or a consequence of sin. So they're asking a question that's pretty common, but that is totally wrong. Now, we bump into some of those types of things today, don't we? Things that are pretty common but aren't true. You could probably think of several of them right now. Maybe even over the last several weeks, you've bumped into some of those types of things. Things that people believe that just simply are not true. That's what this is. So they're looking for Jesus to point blame on either this beggar, blind beggar, or his parents. Don't we always do that? Aren't we always looking for somebody to blame? Right? This happens in my life. Who can I blame? Surely not me. It's got to be somebody else. I don't like the way this is going, so Jesus, who can I blame? Hey, this man's born blind, so somebody has to be to blame for it. And Jesus' answer would have been unexpected. Look at verse 3, the very beginning. Jesus answered and says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents. Okay, hang on, Jesus. The, the common perception here, the way things go is that if this man is blind, either this is punishment for something he did or punishment for something that his parents did. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's neither. Neither this man nor his parents are the cause of his blindness. Okay, let, let's, let's take a sort of a theological pause here, all right? Let's just take a breath because we're going to dig into something that is a little bit deep. We understand that sin is always the reason for our struggles. Sin is always the reason for our struggle. There isn't anything that you struggle with that doesn't have at the heart of it, at the core of it, sin by its very nature. Listen, Adam and Eve sinned. And because of that, work is now hard and not enjoyable most of the time. Childbirth is painful. On our way up here, Judah asked Meredith, um, hey, is it hard to have a baby? <laughs> I love those questions. I'm like, go ahead, sweetie. <laughs> wow, how do you answer that one? Is it hard to have? Yes. It's painful. That's a result of sin. Adam and Eve's sin. Sin is always the reason for our struggles. But I want you to catch this because this is where it gets personal. Specific sin isn't always the reason for our specific struggles. Ultimately, sin was the cause of this man's blindness, but God isn't surprised by our sin. He doesn't react to our choices. God doesn't change his mind like humans do. That's called open theism. God doesn't just go back and forth based on how we feel or how we treat him or the choices that we make. He knows what we're going to do. And if you're a child of God, there is now no more condemnation. There is no punishment 
for sin. Is there discipline? Yes. That's a different thing. Are there consequences? Yes. There is no condemnation for our sin. Jesus took our punishment. That's a, that's a fine line, but let's separate those two things. Jesus took our condemnation, our punishment, our judgment on the cross. Are there consequences for our sin? Yes. But the specific struggle that you may be in right now, that maybe you left at home, or maybe you found out about already since you got here, or maybe something that has been revealed over the last several hours, that specific struggle may not be the result of God punishing you for some specific sin in your life. I'm trying to remove guilt here. God is not that accuser. God does not motivate out of guilt. That's Satan. And so Jesus says the purpose behind this man's blindness goes way beyond a earthly punishment for his sins or punishment for the sins of his parents. And here's what it does do. The end of verse 3. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus, why in the world is this beggar born blind? Did, did he do something? Did his parents do something? Is this some kind of punishment? Are you judging him somehow or his parents? Why did this hard thing happen to this person? Why do bad things happen to people? What's Jesus' answer? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Oh my goodness. We were in Romans 8 last night. Just a couple verses prior to where we dug into last night, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. John is saying the exact same thing here. Jesus says it's not a punishment for his specific sin. Yes, it's a consequence of sin. But the major reason why this man is born blind was so that God may get the glory for his life. Now let that sink in, because there are things happening in your life right now that our human nature immediately thinks, God, what did I do to deserve this? And maybe you did bring it on yourself. But maybe, maybe there's things going on in your life right now that God has allowed or even caused in your life so that the works of God might be displayed in you. That's a shift of perspective for some of us. It's a big idea. In fact, that's where we're going this evening. God lets hard things happen to us for our growth and for his glory. And so there are profound implications to this. No matter what struggle you're in right now, God's purpose in that, that hurt or that struggle or that pain is your growth and his glory. Now think about that. It's not just your growth, but his glory also. There's a purpose in it. No matter what pain you're going through, God's goal is for you to be more like Jesus. At our church, Sailorville Church in Des Moines, Iowa, we say our mission, at the very core of everything we do, we're a gospel-centered church. We're trying to make more people People more like Jesus. That's the Great Commission. That's being disciples and making disciples more like Jesus. So we try to understand in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, that whatever God places into our path, that is there intentionally for our growth to be more like Jesus and for his glory. He's a good God. But he wants his glory. No matter what your mess, God is working all things together for your good and for his glory. And this is how Jesus changes our perspective. On our own, we, we can't rise above those waves in the middle of the lake, right, that we talked about a couple days ago. We can't get out of the pit. We can't get past the pain, and we can't see the truth through our own blindness. And so Jesus, in John chapter 9, gives this blind man, this beggar, a brand new perspective, beginning with the purpose behind the very thing that identified him. Why, Jesus, was I born blind? So that the works of God might be displayed in you. Now, there's five conversations that happen between verse 4 and down at the end of the chapter. And I'd love for you to read those, but because of time, we're going to kind of slide all the way through those and get to the very end of this chapter. This is, this is the haymaker. 
Jesus, why, why was this man born blind? So that God would get the glory. And then I want you to follow all the way down to verse 35. And by now, the religious leaders have taken this blind man and said, okay, you know what? You're out of here. You remind us of things we don't want to think of. We don't like you. We don't approve of what happened. Jesus healed you on the Sabbath, if that is, in fact, what actually happened. And we don't like that. So they cast him out. He's out of his community. He's out of the synagogue. He's out of the assembly. And Jesus meets him again now for the very first time after Jesus has healed him. And in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, the very first time this man sees Jesus eye to eye, face to face, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this man, who was once blind, now sees, says this, Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Remember, he'd never seen him. Jesus said in verse 37, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you now. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. God is looking for worshippers true worshipers, in spirit and in truth. God allowed blindness in this man's life, not as a punishment for his specific sin. Yes, as a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin and all of ours, but not as a consequence for his specific sin or his parents, but so that Jesus might meet him one day, heal him, and this man and others around him might worship Jesus. Now that's a concept. God allows hard things in our lives, maybe even cancer in an eight-year-old, so that God would get the glory, so that we would grow. And ultimately, isn't that the kind of God that we want? It's not comfortable sometimes. It's certainly not convenient. And it's certainly not what I would choose. I, I kind of like the idea of having a God that gives me everything I want. I kind of like the idea of having a God that doesn't allow me to get sunburned on the third day of camp. I kind of like the idea of having a God that doesn't make things difficult. But what kind of God is that? Certainly not a good God. God lets hard things happen in your life maybe even things that are happening right now in your life and in my life so that I will grow to be more like Jesus and so ultimately God will get the glory. And when we worship him, that's what happens. God has shown my wife and I that lesson time after time after time. There is theology here. There is doctrine here. But this is practical theology for you and for us. And actually, I'm going to ask her to come up because part of our story is based in this phrase. God has let, like he has in your life, hard things happen to us and in our lives. And it took us a while to understand, and we're still learning this, that the reason he did that wasn't just for our growth, although that is part of it, but for his glory. And guess what? He gets to do that. Okay, so we haven't, we have, one, we have one son, Judah, but Meredith's been pregnant six times. And so we'll just kind of jump in there, and I'm, it's totally a watermelon that I'm passing you here. So you're on. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, this is the largest crowd that we have ever shared our story with. And I gotta tell you, maybe you can see my heart pounding out of my chest at the moment. Because I would much rather have this conversation around our dinner table. I'd much rather share some of the struggle, some of the sin that God revealed in my life, and some of the amazing things that he did while Judah is running around, and while our dog is attacking you, and while the neighborhood kids are ringing the doorbell, and while we're having ice cream, because that's kind of what we do. It's what we do. It's what we do. So a little bit of background. Um, I've been a Christian for a long time. I remember the Tweety Bird shirt that I had on when I got saved in the back of someone's Buick in 1984. Um, I grew up in upstate New York in a very small 
extra conservative garb church. Maybe you know that type of church that I'm talking about. It was the type of church where everybody was aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. Everybody was grandma and grandpa. And um, those, those practices of how to become more like Jesus were instilled in me early, but also kind of made it seem like a checklist yeah. for me growing up. So my um, parents wisely told me that I had to go to Bible college, which was very wise on their part. Not super wise when I ran into this super cute, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy the first day. <laughs> and then you um, met me later, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when I met Jason, uh, the only thing I knew about missionaries was those um, picture VBS stories, where it was always the missionary on the edge of the river, kneeling down with the natives in a loincloth, and I thought, no, mm -mm. I choose a mall, like I want to drive a car, <laughs> I don't want anything to do with the missionary. And then the Lord brought Jason into my life, and it didn't make sense, lots of it didn't make sense. Um, I'm not your typical pastor's wife. What I knew of pastor's wives was that they didn't sin, um, and that they were always smiling and gave great hugs, and that wasn't me. So this whole thing started out with some weird expectations and some really strange leading in my life. Anyway, we got married. Um, well, hang on. I should say that what, somebody asked me the other day, when did you know that you loved Meredith? And I said, it, it, was, it was during a conversation that we had where I looked at her, and my parents were missionaries. I grew up in South Africa, and, and I believed maybe God was calling me back there one day. And so we hadn't even started dating yet, and I looked at her and I said, hey, listen, if we're going to do this, like, uh, I, I may end up in Africa. Are you going to be okay with that? And she said, if God calls you to Africa, I will follow his call in your life if we're married. And I thought, oh, there, okay, there it is. If, I mean, geez, if you'll go to Africa, where, you'll go to Iowa, my goodness. <laughs> I will go to Iowa. And I think there was a bigger stipulation on if the Lord has us together. That's right, that's Big right. if at that stage. Anyway, we got married, graduated got married a month later. Jason enrolled in seminary, which was right joining the school across from the church that we had worked at. And I went to work putting him through seminary. Um, and I remember starting to not feel well pretty soon after we got married. And so I was 24, the first time I sat in a doctor's office and heard the words polycystic ovarian syndrome as well as endometriosis. It meant nothing to me. Our plan was that Jason would graduate from seminary and become a pastor. We would do that for a couple of years. We would have four children, like, like birth one the day of graduation, that type of thing, had it all mapped out. Four kids, going to the mission field, all that kind of stuff. I remember coming home from the doctor's office and sitting with Jason and just kind of laughing and saying, he said it was going to be hard. Yeah. He said it was going to be really difficult to have kids and that we should start trying right now. And I remember thinking, he doesn't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> he may be a 75-year-old doctor who's about to retire, but he doesn't know anything. Um, and just kept going. Because I had graduated from Bible college. I was putting my husband through seminary. I was a pastor's wife, for goodness sake. The Lord was going to do what I wanted him to do. Yeah. So it started to get harder saw a different doctor, continued to say, you'll be pregnant in three months. Come back in three months, you'll be pregnant. I saw him four times in nine months, and we had never been pregnant. So we decided to, to move things up a notch. At the time, we were living in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The electric city? The electric city. <laughs> and Philadelphia was two hours away. So we moved all of the fertility care fertility specialists, everything to Philly. It was a two-hour drive from our house to our doctor's house and back. And it was frightening, mm -hmm. absolutely frightening, to know that I wasn't in control, that there wasn't anything that I could do, that all of a sudden something that was supposed to be natural, that I was made for, didn't come easy. This whole journey is 10 years long. I think I forgot to say that at the beginning. So if I had known I think my 24-year-old self would have said, absolutely not. Like, it's just going to be the two of us, and we're going to own really nice cars and travel the world for the rest of our lives, and we would be fine with that. But the Lord had other plans. We're still in youth ministry at this time, so we would drive 
We would leave our house around 4 o'clock in the morning, drive down for a test, blood work, lab work, all that kind of stuff, and be back by 8.30 for meetings and for me to go to work. And sometimes, sometimes every day in a week, right? Sometimes every day for a week, sometimes every day for 10 days. There were all kinds of medications, there were all kinds of injections, and the more we went down, the closer we grew, which was such an unexpected blessing, but the more angry I became with the Lord. That's hard to admit to a group. I was so angry with the Lord. I had given my life to ministry. I married a pastor. This guy wanted to be a missionary. Of course he was going to give us kids. Give us kids is a natural thing to do. So I feel like people in Iowa pop babies out like, I don't even know. It's just you sneeze and there's another one. I don't, I don't get it. It's, it's all the bacon. <laughs> it's handballs. It must be handballs, oh. people. That's a whole other topic. Handballs hand are balls. the worst. Yeah. Anyway, um, I remember thinking, I can, I can do this ministry thing. I can teach kids about the Bible. That's a knowledge thing. I don't ever have to share my heart. I don't ever have to tell them that I'm not really sure that God is a loving God. I'm not really sure that he has the best for me. I don't really believe that he even cares or sees me. So it became super mechanical. It just became something that I wanted, that I was going to prove God wrong. If you're not going to give me what I want, I'm going to get it anyway. The amount of drugs, the amount of money. Prescribed drugs. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good clarification. Good catch. Frank the Butcher was not right about that. <laughs> oh, I'm still nervous. Um, <laughs> I, if we were to add up all the pregnancy tests that we have taken over the years, it's well into the 500s. It was just long, 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 long. And to cap it all off, I knew that I knew I couldn't live like this much longer. Um, there's such a bitterness growing inside me. It was such a chore to actually go and to put on the face. Maybe you know that when you're angry with God and you feel like you just have to put on the face anyway because it's going to take too long or nobody really cares to know or to let somebody in is dangerous. It's actually, actually very, very vulnerable. Jason has a couple younger siblings and one of them um, got pregnant and drove from Indiana to Pennsylvania to tell us face to face that they were pregnant with twins. So sweet. And I cried so hard because she had what I wanted. Not happy for her, not joyful at all, jealous, envious, mad, so angry at the Lord. All of our friends were having kids. I All mean, our, our closest friends, friends every, everybody around us was, was having kids like it was no big deal. But maybe that's not, maybe having a baby is not where you're at. I hope that's not where you're at. <laughs> But that's probably something else. Yeah. I know I'm not the only one in the room who has struggled with not believing that God is who he says he is and that he loves me as much as he says he does. Yeah. So I was so mad one day. We were, had a challenge with the kids. You know, you need to spend time in God's word. So I knew that these 16-year-olds were going to ask me about it. So I opened my Bible and I was reading Psalm 73. I'm not sure if you've ever read it before, but it's a Psalm of Asaph. The first 14 verses are him just laying it down with the Lord. This is awful. Look at all these people that don't love you and how they're benefiting all over with everything in sight. They don't ever struggle. They don't ever suffer. They have everything that they need and everything that they want. And I was like, yeah, this is my Psalm. Here we go. Finally, somebody who gets me. And then there's three verses in the middle of the Psalm that say... If I had let myself stay there, I would have betrayed a generation. I'm a youth pastor's wife, trying to teach kids that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. Verse 17, 16, 17, 
says, then I went into the sanctuary. I spent time with the Lord. And it all changed. When you lean on your own understanding, you can't expect to gain heavenly wisdom, to gain knowledge. So I started reading more and more and more and more. And we kept driving to Philadelphia and driving to Philadelphia. Every test was negative. None of the drugs were working. They literally made you crazy. We used to sneak our dog, our little Yorkie puppy, into the doctor's office because I just needed something to hold on to. Like, please just tell me that my dog is cute <laughs> while you give me this horrible test and take another huge vial of blood. Just tell me my dog's cute today, please. And that's what I held on to until the Lord gave me a psalm to stand on. Until I realized in the most loving and gentle way, he showed me what an idol I had made having a baby. Babies are good things. Babies are gifts from the Lord. And I had replaced the giver with the gift and was mad when he wouldn't give me what I wanted, when he wouldn't let me glory in the gift and instead of glorying in him the whole time. So he gave me this psalm. Uh, it's, still my, it's still my favorite. It still speaks to me today, and maybe it will hit you where you're at. It says, oh Lord, how long, sorry, it's Psalm 13. How long will you forget me? Forever? Will you look the other way? How long? How long must I struggle in anguish with my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, oh Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated her. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But, which is my favorite word in scripture, the only phrase that's better is but God. But, I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he has been so good to me. All of a sudden, the Lord put himself back on the throne, back at the center, reminding me that if nothing else happened in my life, if I never had a baby, if everything washed away, if my house burned down, if my family all left, he didn't owe me anything. He had sent Christ for me, for me, ungrateful, angry, jealous, worshiping other things besides him. And he loved me anyway. So things changed. The circumstances didn't change. Still couldn't get pregnant. Still driving to Philly all the time. And in that, in that time, um, my dad was diagnosed with ALS. I don't know if you know anything about ALS, but uh, diagnosis to death is usually about 11 months, and it's a deteriorative d disease. So you just watch your loved one be trapped until they die. So this is my new focus, realizing that if God takes everything, he owes me nothing. I took a leave of absence from work. We put our fertility everything on hold and I would drive up Sunday, Sunday afternoons after church to help take care of my dad back on Wednesday afternoons back up on Thursday mornings my parents lived about two hours three hours from our house and I did that for six months to be with my dad to be able to speak truth to my dad's heart to be able to love my mom to be able to support her clean the toilets, do the grocery shopping. To be able to tell people about what it looks like to praise the Lord in a difficult situation. Part of my story is being able to stand here even in tears and say, 
that God is good even when he was allowing my dad to die. The day that my dad died, I went and bought a pair of boots, <laughs> which sounds really silly, um, to remind me forever when I see those boots in the closet that he was walking, hanging out with Jesus, probably giving weird dad handshakes to everyone else that was in heaven at the moment, but walking, something that he hadn't done in almost a year, to remind me that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he has said he will do, yeah. including redeeming us, preparing a place for us. So... <laughs> Watch the clock here. Okay, sorry. We got kids that are clawing their eyeballs out, oh. probably. <laughs> sorry One of them's that. ours. <laughs> He's long gone. He, he's fine. <laughs> We're not paying these people enough to watch him. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so we resumed fertility treatments again and started getting pregnant and then started having miscarriages. Uh, yeah, you know, when, when you've got a bunch of people praying for you and a bunch of people looking forward to stuff and the whole church kind of coming behind you, like, like some of you have probably right now, your church behind you in, in whatever it is you're going through, and you drive two hours and, and you're, you're hoping for a heartbeat, you know? And then you've got to make all those phone calls on the way back, and, and people are just asking the same questions that, that we'd been asking. You know, how, how, is it, how is it that God can be good and not give you what seems to make sense and we yeah we asked that and people asked us that yeah. and you have to continue to turn people along with your own heart back to scripture God mm -hmm. God doesn't owe us anything he doesn't know us a thing somebody asked us um, a little bit ago uh, how how has God blessed you since um, since he gave you a son and the truth is, God didn't have to give us a son to bless us. We, we were incredibly blessed before God gave us anything. Mm -hmm. Everything we have and everything you have is, is because God has given it to you. We deserve nothing. We deserve hell. Mm -hmm. And he, gave, he kept us from that if you're a Christ follower. He took that from us. And everything you have, every good gift comes... From him, and and so here's a six and a half, almost seven year old, reminding us. In fact, just, just tell him about the name story, and then we'll kind of wrap things up. I have something else to say. That's fine. Okay, I have the mic. <laughs> you can sit down. This thing's attached to me. <laughs> There's a couple things I learned in getting in getting pregnant and staying pregnant with Judah. One, I think I always thought that prayer just kind of went to the Lord like an email. Like, he would get it and see it and then decide yes, no, or maybe. And he would kind of just, you know, do whatever. But I think it's actually more like a filing cabinet. And this is such a rudimentary way to even comprehend how the mind of God works. But I think he gets our prayers. He hears our prayers and knows our heart and kind of files them away. There is no reason. There is no human reason why Judah is the way that he is with us as his parents. <laughs> it's only by the grace of God that he loves people. It's only by the grace of God and the prayers of all of those people that he loves Jesus. It has very little to do with us. The other thing I learned is when God asks you to wait, it's because what you're asking for pales in comparison to what he has for you. My idea of what a what a child would be like has been blown out of the water by that fireball every day for the last six and a half years. And it has nothing to do with me. It's everything to do with the good gifts. So Judah's name. Judah's name is Judah Madison. Judah in the Hebrew means praise God. There isn't actually anything that we can say about him except praise God more than we deserve. Madison means gift of God. So when you say his name, you're actually saying praise God for the gift, which is all that I can say. That's it. That And please pray for us <laughs> as we try to parent him. Our story is very specific. Actually, 
the statistics say that one in four families deals with some type of infertility and miscarriage. So in a room this size, there's almost 100 of you that are probably either yourself have struggled, will struggle, are struggling, or know someone who does. But the principles are the same. Second Corinthians chapter 1 talks about being comforted by the comforter with the great comfort, and it's not specific yeah. to infertility, to yeah. cancer, to divorce. It's not yeah. at all specific. Because I have been comforted, I've got something to give. Yeah. I've got something to share, and so do you. Yep. Yep. Yeah, So whatever's happening in your life, infertility, your father passing away, some, something else, probably is something else, how is God using that, how does he want to use that to turn your heart to him, to worship him? This man, born blind, a beggar, people say, who sinned, him or his parents? Why did a good God allow something bad to happen to this guy? The answer was, so that God might get the glory. God wants the glory for what he's allowing in your life. Don't short-circuit the process by trying to get rid of your struggles. Give them to him. He can handle it. And he'll get the glory. And you'll grow with him in this. Th thanks for allowing us to share that. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if this will come to anything, but I've given Noah... Um, my cell number, Meredith's cell number, he's going to put that up on the screen. And I talked to Pastor Tim and Pastor Phil um, as well earlier this week. If, if, anything, if we can answer any questions for you, um, or if you just want somebody to talk to, okay, uh, you don't know us from anybody probably, and that may be a really good thing this week. Please send a text to one of those numbers, and, um, or both of them. And if we have enough questions, maybe we'll take like an evening session on Thursday and just kind of answer some of those questions. If, if there's not enough or whatever, we'll just get back to you privately, and that's okay as well. Um, we've got something else planned we can do too. But, um, but if, there's, if there's enough of a response that we think, yeah, God is clearly in this, then we'll just take an evening and, and maybe answer some of those questions for people, um, like from the stage, if that's okay. All right? Maybe God's stirring something in your heart. Uh, and maybe a huge part of that is you just need to bow down, worship him, and say, thank you for allowing struggles in my life. I need to give those back to you and, and tear down the idols of the things that I've put on, on the throne of my life and uh, replace that idol with, with the true king, Jesus. We, we want to see more people be, be like Jesus, uh, in, starting with ourselves. Hey, thanks. Let me pray, and then, then we can get out of here. Lord, thank you. Thanks, first of all, for your son, Jesus Christ. Thanks for the gospel. I thank you that there is no more condemnation for those that are in you. And Lord, that the things that you allow and cause in our lives, um, you do that so that you can get the glory. And Lord, that is, that's the way it should be. And our response can really only be, blessed be the name of the Lord, the one who gives and takes away. And when the world isn't the way we think it should be, all as it should be, you're still in control. And what's wrong with the world, it's probably us. We bless your name tonight because of who you are and what you've done in your name. Amen.